This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So here are five more poems through time, and I should say before I read them that if anyone wants to suggest a poem that I read here uh, for this series, which will probably go on for uh, quite a bit, uh, just send me an email, humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com, and that email address is also always in the post description. So as before, you start in the 20th century and move. we will move our way backwards. This first poem comes from the American poet Amy Lowell, who lived from 1874 to 1925. And this is an incredible uh, poem about love that ends up uh, seeing that love isn't quite what she's looking for. a poem in love with isolation, I guess you could say. And this is a poem called New Heavens for Old. And it says, I am useless. What I do is nothing. What I think has no savor. There is an almanac between the windows. It is of the year when I was born. My fellows call to me to join them. They shout for me, passing the house in a great wind of vermilion banners. They are fresh and fulminant. They are indecent and strut with the thought of it. They laugh and curse and brawl and cheer a holocaust of who comes firsts at the iron fronts of the houses at the two edges of the street. Young men with naked hearts jeering between iron house fronts. Young men with naked bodies beneath their clothes, passionately conscious of them, ready to strip off their clothes, ready to strip off their customs, their usual routine, clamoring for the rawness of life, in love with appetite, proclaiming it as a creed, worshiping youth, worshiping themselves. They call for women, and the women come. They bear the whiteness of their lusts to the dead gaze of the old house fronts. They roar down the street like flame. They explode upon the dead houses like new, sharp fire. But I, I arrange three roses in a Chinese vase. A pink one, a red one, a yellow one. 
I fuss over their arrangement. Then I sit in a south window and sip pale wine with a touch of hemlock in it and think of winter nights and field mice crossing and recrossing the spot which will be my grave. And that last stanza is worth reading again. Uh, the uh, Just when you think you have a handle on it, the mystery of it comes in again. But I, I arrange three roses in a Chinese vase, a pink one, a red one, a yellow one. I fuss over their arrangement. Then I sit in a south window and sip pale wine with a touch of hemlock in it and think of winter nights and field mice crossing and recrossing the spot which will be my grave. And for me, anyhow, at least part of that sounds like um, sounds like thoughts many of us may have had in high school or college, that everyone is outside the window having a lot more fun than we are. Um, and that just seems like a poem that could not have been written, or certainly could not have been written in that way before the 20th century. Uh, this next poem comes from Thomas Hardy, and it's strange to say, but before a few years ago, I had no idea that Thomas Hardy also wrote poetry. But as it turns out, um, if I remember the story correctly, he had his string of novels. He had Tess of the D'Urbervilles, and then, of course, the one that slips my mind that I can't remember the name of. And the, the reactions to it, um, A Jude the Obscure, there it is. Uh, and the reaction to it, uh, to his novels, especially Tess of the D'Urbervilles and Jude the Obscure, were so negative, so vitriolic, that he said that he was giving up prose altogether and he had made a success of with his novels enough to where he could do this. And he was going to settle back to doing what he began to do, which was write poetry. Again, if I have the, the story correctly, he came to London as a young man and wanted to make it as a poet, but couldn't do it, and then took up writing novels, and it wasn't until later that he was able to take up poetry again uh, and focus just on that. And it is strange, Hardy is one of those people who who was able to write novels and poetry like nobody else. Uh, usually it's one or the other, or um, you do have a novelist who can write poetry, but the poetry is not great, or a poet who can write novels, but the novels aren't great. And in, But in Hardy's case, he's one of those people who can uh, do both in an immense way. And this is a poem right on the cusp. This is from December of 1900. And this is uh, Thomas Hardy's great poem called The Darkling Thrush. I leant upon a coppice gate when frost was specter gray and winter's drags made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bind stems scored the sky 
like strings from broken lyres, and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to be the century's corpse outlent, his crypt the cloudy canopy, the wind his death lament. The ancient pulse of germ and birth was shrunken hard and dry, and every spirit upon the earth seemed fervorless as I. At once a voice outburst among the black twigs overhead, in full in a full hearted evensong of joy illimited, an aged thrush, frail, gaunt and small, in blast beruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. So little cause for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around, that I could think there trembled through his happy good-night air, some blessed hope whereof he knew, and I was unaware. And that is December 1900 from Thomas Hardy. And uh, I remember what I was doing in December of, uh, of uh, 1999, just at the turn of the century. And you wonder what kind of poem Thomas Hardy may have written back when Y2K was, uh, was the big worry. Um, to keep up with the winter theme here, go back a little further. When did this guy live? This is a poem by William Cowper, who let's see. Mr. Cowper lived from 1731 to 1800, and this poem was uh, published in 1785, so very near the end of a long life. And you can see here, uh, this is before Wordsworth gets going, but you can see here, uh, as you listen to this poem called The Winter Evening, you can hear uh, what Wordsworth would become in this poem. And also you can hear how far past a poem like this Wordsworth would go. And this is William Cowper's The Winter Evening, and this is what it says. Just when our drawing rooms begin to blaze with lights, by clear reflection multiplied from many a mirror, in which he of Gath, Goliath, might have seen his giant bulk, whole, without stooping, towering crest and all, my pleasures too begin. But me, perhaps, the glowing hearth may satisfy a while with faint illumination that uplifts the shadow to the ceiling, thereby fits dancing uncouthly to the quivering flame. Not undelightful is an hour to me so spent in parlor twilight. Such a gloom suits well the thoughtful or unthinking mind, the mind contemplative with some new theme pregnant or indisposed alike to all. Laugh ye who boast your more mercurial powers that never feel a stupor, know no pause, nor need one. 
I am conscious and confess, fearless, a soul that does not always think. Me oft has fancy, ludicrous and wild, soothed with a waking dream of houses, towers, trees, churches, and strange visages, expressed in red cinders, while with pouring eye I gazed, myself creating what I saw. Nor less amused have I, quiescent, watched these sooty films that play upon the bars, pendulous and foreboding, in the view of superstition, prophesying still, though still deceived, some stranger's near approach. Tis thus the understanding takes repose in indolent vacuity of thought, and sleeps and is refreshed. Meanwhile, the face conceals the mood lethargic with a mask of deep deliberation, as the man were tasked to his full strength, absorbed and lost. Thus oft, reclined at ease, I lose an hour at evening, till at length the freezing blast that sweeps the bolted shutter summons home the recollected powers, and, snapping short the glassy threads with which the fancy weaves her brittle toys, restores me to myself. How calm is my recess, and how the frost raging abroad, and the rough wind, endear the silence and the warmth within. I saw the woods and fields at close of day, a variegated show, the meadows green though faded, and lands where lately waved the golden harvest of a mellow brown, upturned so lately by the forceful share. I saw far off the weedy fallows smile with a verdure not unprofitable, grazed by flocks, fast feeding and selecting each his favorite herb, while all the leafless groves that skirt the horizon wore a sable hue, scarce noticed in the kindred dusk of eve. Tomorrow brings a change, a total change, which even now, though silently performed, and slowly and by most unfelt, the face of universal nature undergoes. Fast falls a fleecy shower, the downy flakes descending, and with never-ceasing lapse softly alighting upon all below, assimilate all objects. Earth receives gladly the thickening mantle, and the green and tender blade that feared the chilling blast escapes unhurt beneath so warm a veil. Now for me that sounds uh, beautiful in many passages, but also quite tangled in the way it is talking. If you compare uh, a poem written at just about the exact same time that I recorded in the last episode, Mary Robinson's London, uh, London Sunday Morning, I think, you can see the two of them dealing with the iambic line in immensely different ways. This, as I said, I think, at least to me, it sounds awfully tangled sometimes. And you can see how Wordsworth would take up many of these themes, but just find a more natural or uh, just a more natural way of saying it. 
And the Mary Robinson poem from last week is like looking through a, a clear pane of glass compared to William Cowper's poem. But still, if you think of a, a poem at the end, near the end of your life about winter and about all of these concerns, you, you, wouldn't, um, you wouldn't begrudge the guy uh, making a complicated poem like this. And also, in a way, as I was reading it, it sounds to me like, uh, especially when you know what Wordsworth is about to do in the next 15 or 20 years, uh, it sounds like someone has uh, learned poetry and then just sort of started to add little decorations, little uh, crowns and little encrustings of things that don't really need to be there. Um, because they're not really sure where the language and where the poetry should go. And in a way, maybe this sounds like a poem that is written these days, where again, poets aren't really quite sure what they want poems to be, whether they should be academic or whether they should be uh, intentionally obscure or intentionally uh, complex, because apparently the world is complex and obscure, and they're not quite sure what to do with the language, and it feels like the language is sort of on a last, ga a last gasp in a way, or it's tired or just unsure. And this sounds like a poem written at the end of, at the end of a period of the language. I could be wrong, but when I get to the very last poem I'll read here today, you'll see more of what I mean by that. Um, the next poem is from, is a poem many of you will have heard, and it is from uh, John Donne. Let me find his. It would be good to have his ears. Let me just look that up quickly. Uh, this will be one, one of John Donne's sonnets, probably his most famous sonnet. So John Donne lived from 1572 to 1631. And this is one of his one of his holy sonnets. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls' delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. And that's also a fairly complex sounding, uh, or just to have it read, so let's read it again. Death be not proud, Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. 
For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison ward sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. And two things. The first is that uh, I can't not hear that poem without remembering where I first heard it, which is in the movie The Exorcist Part 3, when the serial killer uh, in his padded cell and uh, uh, in his straitjacket, played amazingly by Brad Dorif, uh, recites that poem. And that's probably the first time I ever heard John Donne as well, or probably 12 or 13 when I first saw that movie. And the second is that, and this is just instinct of mine, but uh, the complexity in Dunn's poem seems much different than the complexity in the Cowper poem. The Cowper poem's complexity seems like a uh, almost tired and overwrought at times language at the end of a period where, uh, where poets have almost learned too much and they just start sort of adding little bits and pieces and crusts of things uh, onto their poems. Dunn's complexity sounds like something powerful and original uh, and new to the language at the beginning of that transformation, at least to me. That may not make much sense to anybody else. Uh, this last poem is from Christopher Marlowe, 1564 to 1593. So this is the oldest poem I will have read here yet, but I also think it is one of the most, um, uh, one of the poems with the greatest clarity that I've read here. And it strikes me too that uh, after listening to this, it may seem as if it's not really a good poem at all. It might even re resemble uh, some, uh, some blog poem that someone wrote with their rhyming dictionary next to them. But I think when you listen to this, it, it suggests a great knowledge that poets, uh, certain poets once had, um, not just of the heights, you might say, or the, um, the, the highest apparent sophistication of the language, but also of, of folk song and folk rhyme and folk melody. And this is Christopher Marlowe's poem, The Passionate Shepherd to His Love. And again, this, is from the this poem is from the Penguin Book of Renaissance Verse where the uh, editors do not update or smooth out the spellings. So there are wonderful spellings here. I'll just mention one of them again, like I did last time. Uh, Christopher Marlowe spells the word embroidered in this way. 
I-M-B-R-O-Y-D-R-E-D, embroidered all with leaves of myrtle. And that is incredible to think that uh, that is how uh, people once spelled embroidered, what, what fun times the language has with itself, and then the double and triple life it has when people put these things into print and try to regulate it all eventually. In any case, this is a wonderful love poem by Christopher Marlowe, the passionate shepherd to his love. And to me, it sounds like uh, a folk song or something that anyone could very easily record bits and pieces of today. Come live with me and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove that valleys, groves, hills, and fields woods or steep mountain yields. And we will sit upon the rocks, seeing the shepherds feed their flocks by shallow rivers, to whose falls melodious birds sing madrigals. And I will make thee beds of roses and a thousand fragrant posies, a cap of flowers and a kirtle, embroidered all with leaves of myrtle, a gown made of the finest wool, which from our pretty lambs we pull, fair-lined slippers for the cold, with buckles of the purest gold, a belt of straw and ivy buds, with coral clasps and amber studs. And if these pleasures may thee move, come, live with me, and be my love. The shepherd's swain shall dance and sing, for thy delight each May morning. If these delights thy mind may move, then live with me and be my love. And it's incredible that that is, again, 520, 530 years old and still just sings. It's I'll just leave it here. I would like to leave it with that line, with that poem, but I've been trying to find a poem of W.H. Auden's to read here, but I can't really find a way to give much of a shit about W.H. Auden. I've really tried. And um, just as I was reading that, I was recalling a poem of Auden's, which rhymed, um, and... uh, and I thought, if only people learned uh, rhyme from a poem like Marlowe's, rather than the weird uh, um, sort of childishness or whatever it was Auden thought he was doing in a lot of his uh, rhyming poems, where it's supposed to be casual or, or sound vernacular and, and just sounds. Uh, as forced as any other bad rhyming poem could be. And that's just an invitation. If anyone knows of a good Auden poem I should read here, send it along. And until then, thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, 
You can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.